You can make your way back to your seat. We'll keep going. If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the uh, one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and we're certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. Um, Joe this morning is in PEI at uh, at Christ Central Charlottetown, and he's there uh, with Ollie. Ollie is with them to encourage the church there and build them up. Uh, Kevin is visiting Ryan and Ashley in Ontario, and we know that Gary's in Vancouver, so we're all spread out this morning. Uh, but it's good. It's good that, uh, that we're able to do that. <clears throat> so we've been working our way through Romans for the past few weeks, and we're just going to keep on going this morning. And this morning we're in Romans 5, and uh, Paul is going to continue looking at justification by faith, and he wants to hammer this home. And we looked at some uh, things from that last week about how it covers any sin and uh, it means we can get saved, at, we can be justified at any time, that there's no time delay, that it's for all time, that it's for every day, that it's for all the nations. And this morning, Paul's just going to continue pushing that in. So that's why the title this morning is Justification by Faith, Further Up and Further In, okay? And kudos if you get the Chronicles of Narnia reference in there. We're going further up and further in with justification by faith. So I'll pray and we'll read Romans 5, 1 to 11. So Father, we're just so thankful for your presence here with us this morning by your Spirit. We thankful, we're thankful that you've been speaking to us, that you've been encouraging us through the songs that we've sung. We thank you for the privilege it is to worship you and give you the praise and the honor that you deserve. And as we come to your word, we just pray that your spirit would use the word uh, to impact us, to change us. Uh, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers as well. And so we pray this morning that your spirit would work in us. We want to be changed in your presence. Uh, for your glory, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to read Romans 5, 1 to 11. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you can see a lot of the themes in those 11 verses that we've already sung about, we've already heard uh, through uh, tongues and interpretation, through prophetic words through scriptures that were shared. And so God, I think, is, uh, is driving this home for us this morning. So we notice right off the bat that Paul begins Romans 5 with therefore, 
And uh, when Karen and Ben and Jill and I were out west for our intense three months of biblical training, um, that's all right, okay. We had a professor who would say, when there's a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. There we go. So we've covered that in the last two weeks. We've seen what the therefore is. And Paul gives a summary. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So now all the stuff that he's saying is because we've been justified by faith. So they're like the benefits of justification by faith. And also the therefore kind of works as a a signpost letting us know that there's a turn up ahead. And for the next four chapters from 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul's exposition of the gospel is taking a turn. And he's going to focus on uh, our assurance of the hope that's laid up for us and how we have the power to fight sin in the meantime. And so that's the turn that we're taking here at Romans 5 with that therefore. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, and so another way to say that is we've been justified by faith, now what? We've been justified by faith, now what? And Paul presents three realities that justification brings, peace, grace, and hope, and with Paul's main emphasis here being on the last one, on hope. So let's work our way through these first few verses of Romans 5. The first thing, he says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first blessing of justification that Paul presents to us is peace with God. Peace is a fairly common word inside and outside the church. We hear about peace all the time, whether it's 45 years ago and you were riding on the peace train with Cat Stevens and Marilyn and, Cal- Marilyn and Kevin Calhoun, or if it's the Miss America pageant and yet another contestant is saying the one thing that society needs is world peace, right? And harsher punishment for parole violators. No? Yes? You're with me? everyone wants peace, everyone knows we need peace, everyone is desperately searching for peace, whether it's at the personal level or at the global level, we all want peace. And it's important to note that Paul just doesn't say peace in general, it's not just peace for the world, not a make peace, not war type of peace, it's peace with God. And so we need to note first that it's not the same as the peace of God that we read about, say, in Philippians 4, the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not the peace of God that, pe- that Paul is talking about. That is the, the serenity or the calmness in the midst of chaos around us. Paul says that that's a peace that goes beyond our understanding. We look around us, it's turmoil, it's chaos, but we have peace in the midst of a storm. The world presents us with troubles, and with pressures and trials, but we are satisfied and we are calm in God. That is the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That can go up and down, and we might feel it more one day and less another. And when we hear that our Christian friend is experiencing some sort of trial or suffering, and we pray that God gives them peace, that's the peace that we're talking about. But here, it's peace with God, peace with God, not the peace of God. The peace with God 
doesn't fluctuate. It isn't subjective. It's a status between you and God. Peace with God means that before you were a Christian, you were at war with God. Before you were a Christian, you were at war with God. And we saw that when we looked at Romans 1, 2, and 3 a few weeks ago. We were enemies with God. There was hostility between us and God. We thumbed our noses at God, and God's wrath was on us. Not a vengeful, out-of-control temper tantrum, but a holy, righteous wrath from God on us in our sin. But then you look at verse 10 in Romans 5, and Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Now we have peace with God. And that is why our gospel message can never just be, you just need to live for God, or you just need to love God. No, you're an enemy, and you're in need of reconciliation with God that comes by turning from any effort of yourself to bring peace between you and God and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to bring that reconciliation to you. That is the peace with God. So peace with God is something entirely different from peace, the peace of God. But the important connection is this. You cannot have the peace of God until you have peace with God. You can't have the peace of God guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus until you have the peace with God. And so the world wants peace and they look for it in every corner and under every rock and they try any number of things to find peace. They try spirituality. I had an uh, instructor when I was in community college and he had this thing in the center, in the middle of his, or in the corner of his office and he'd come in and he'd move some rocks around and do something and I went in and talked to him because I was like 19 and still trying to figure my way and he talked all about how moving these rocks around and brought him more peace and looking desperate for peace and unable to find it. And I had a hairdresser a few weeks ago tell me that she rearranged her whole house because her bed wasn't properly aligned with her front door or something, desperately trying to find peace. And if you're here and if you've been looking for peace in any number of things, if you've been looking for peace in those things, if you've been looking for peace in yoga class or you've been looking for peace in the success of your kids or you've been looking for peace in another dollar or whatever it might be, you will not find it. C.S. Lewis said, God doesn't give peace apart, peace and happiness apart from himself. He can't because it's not there. So ultimately, peace will not be found by any of those things. Peace will only be found by having peace with God. And that's what we have through Jesus, justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Second, Paul says that justification by faith brings us peace with God. It also brings us access into the grace that we stand in. He says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace 
in which we stand. So the second benefit of justification is a standing in grace. And we heard that when we went around the room and talked about, uh, you know, the, the, we gave praise to God and many of them were about God's lavish grace poured on us, our everyday grace that Trevor talked about. That's what this is talking about. We have obtained access to grace, not just a one-time thing, a grace in which we stand. We are firmly planted in it. We're rooted in grace, and we have access to that. <clears throat> Many people love the royal family, and my grandmother certainly did, and almost kind of a mini obsession with the royal family, and Prince William is probably at the pinnacle of that. If you wanted to, you might adore Prince William, you might love Prince William, but if he was here in Fredericton, you would not just run up on Prince William and give him a hug, right? You'd probably be taken out about 20 feet away, right? In the same way, you can't just, have, just start a relationship with Prince William. You can't just start a lifelong friendship with Prince William just out of the blue unless you have access to him, right? Unless somebody comes and says, look, I've known Will forever, we're good friends, why don't you come with me and I'll introduce you. You cannot have those things unless somebody introduces you. You can't have that access, that privilege, unless somebody brings you on their behalf. And that's what Paul's talking about. We have access to grace. We can't just go into it. We have access to grace, to God's presence, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of his status before God. He says, come. Come in right into the throne room of God. It's okay. You're with me. And we can develop that friendship with God. He is our righteousness. He is our access. A relationship with God begins by grace, and in that same grace, you now stand daily, every day, firmly planted in that grace. John Piper describes it this way. He says, this is something more than justification and something more than peace Listen, this is the mighty sphere and influence and dominion of transforming, empowering, preserving grace. God's infinite power no longer against us, but for us. God's infinite power no longer against us, but for us. And so if you're a Christian this morning, that's what you're standing in. You are standing in God's infinite power no longer against you, but for you. That's the access of grace that we've been brought into. And notice that Paul doesn't just say access to God. He talks about access to grace. He wants to pound it into us that it's a gift. That it's a gift. It's not through what we've done. It's not our righteousness. It's all a gift from God. So now, as a Christian, I've received salvation as a gift from God, and any blessing I receive and any height of achievement I might do, any kingdom work I might build, it's all ultimately a gift from Him for Him. It is all to do with grace. God's infinite power no longer against us, but for us. Peace, grace, the third benefit of justification, the hope of the glory of God that we rejoice in. 
the hope of the glory of God that we rejoice in. He says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in the Bible for the Christian isn't just wishful thinking. It's not just a wishful idea that I hope happens. That's how we use it in our regular everyday conversations. We might say, boys, I really hope the Broncos win the Super Bowl. It's wishful thinking. Or maybe even more wishful thinking, I hope the Leafs win the cup, right? <laughs> wishful, wishful thinking. You might be driving home on the bus and you say, I wish or I hope that we have pizza for supper. You say you hope because you don't have any certainty that your parents will be making pizza for supper. It could be meatloaf and cabbage rolls, right? We don't know. No? No meatloaf, cabbage rolls? Yes? No? But that's, what, that's the way we use hope. We don't know for certain, and so it's kind of a wishful thinking. But hope in the Bible isn't wishful thinking. It is a conviction. It is a hope-filled certainty. You can bank on this hope. You live in light of this hope. It isn't a gamble. Hope for the Christian is a certainty because the one that we've put our hope in is certain, right? When you're hoping for pizza, you're hoping in your parents and your parents are not certain. When you put your hope in the Maple Leafs, they are definitely not certain and so it is wishful thinking. But when you put your hope in God, Jesus Christ, who never changes, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who has never broken a promise and never will break a promise, your hope is now certain. Hope is a certain expectation of something good in the future. And here the something good in the future is a sharing of the glory of God. We've brought in, been brought into peace with God. We have access to grace. And now we have this hope of the glory of God. And really those first two benefits, peace with God and access to grace, they flow in to this one. They play in to our hope of the glory of God. And Tim Keller says, the more we experience our peace and access with the Father, the more desirous we are to see Him face to face. And the more certain and thrilled we, come, we become about the prospect of glory and heaven. By itself, heaven can be an abstract and unappetizing idea. But if you come to taste access with God and realize how intoxicating it is just to have a couple of drops of His presence on your tongue, you will desire to drink from the fountainhead. That desire, focus, and joyous certainty of the future is called the hope of glory. So you see how those two play in together. I've been made, I've been brought into peace with God. I now have access into His presence. And the more I taste of His presence, the more I desire to drink from the fountainhead. And that joyous expectation is the hope of glory. We're really quiet this morning. We see that justification by faith, three benefits right there. They blow your mind. That you were an enemy, you've been brought into peace with God. You now have everyday access into His grace, and you can now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's good, right? It's good. And so right after unpacking all of that, Paul says, not only that, 
which is code for, hang on, I'm going to take this to another level. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Because Paul knows that as soon as you talk about benefits and you talk about all these good things like peace and grace and hope, that some are going to say, easy for you to say. Easy for you to say, Paul, you haven't been through what I've been through. You don't know what I'm in currently. You don't know what's happened to me in the past. Easy for you to say. Or you might say, yeah, that's good, but it's not for me because I'm in the midst of this thing. Paul knows that. He beats them to the punch. And he says, hey, all this I'm talking about, peace, grace, rejoicing in hope, whatever suffering you're in, whatever pain you're under, whatever loss you've experienced, it does not rule this out. Justification by faith brings you peace with God. It brings you access to grace and a rejoicing in hope and suffering does not steal that from you. You can rejoice in your suffering. Just as a quick aside, notice that Paul doesn't say we rejoice for suffering. Suffering happens because we live in a broken world, a world broken by sin, and so we don't rejoice for that. We don't say, I'm so happy for this terrible diagnosis. I'm so happy for this loss that I've experienced. Sin and suffering and sickness and pain we know will one day be wiped out in God's presence, so we don't rejoice for the things that will be uh, ruled out when God reigns ultimately. We rejoice in suffering, not for suffering. We're strange, but we're not weird. We rejoice in suffering, but we don't rejoice for suffering. And we don't rejoice in spite of suffering, kind of ignoring it, what we're going through and pretending that it's not there while we praise God and we put on our plastic smile and we come to church and we just rejoice in spite of suffering. Oh, what? I'm not, nothing's going on. No, I'm just praising God. I'm just rejoicing. He says, no, we rejoice in our suffering. So why are we able to do that? And remember where he started. He started with, because God justified us by faith. So now I'm freed from the trap of thinking that this suffering has come as punishment for God, from God for not living up to his expectations. Because it wasn't my performance that saved me in the first place. I'm free from seeing this suffering as punishment for my sins because I know that Jesus took my punishment for my sins on the cross. Now, he might be disciplining you. He might be getting your attention. He might be bringing you around. But it is not punishment for your sins out of anger. It is discipline out of his love. So now that we've been justified by faith and not by our works, we're free to know that no matter what we might go through, God still loves us because he loved us while we were enemies. He loved us while we were ungodly. And so we know that this punishment, this suffering is not punishment out of anger, that his love is still with us. You see how this one truth just penetrates every area of our life. 
Justification by faith is meant to be our warm blanket on a cold night of suffering. That he's justified us by faith and not by our works. That he justified us while we were ungodly. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So when we've been justified by faith, not by works, so now when we face suffering, we can rejoice because God is at work even in our suffering. And what is this work that God is doing? Look how Paul outlines it, this kind of chain reaction that unloads here. He says, first, suffering produces endurance. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So suffering works in us a resoluteness, a steadfastness to keep going. A few weeks ago, Tim and I were in the Ethiopian desert together, remember, with Bear Grylls? <clears throat> Say that Tim and I went for a bike ride. It's a lot better this time, Tim. We can throw Bear Grylls in too. He comes with us. So we go out in the parking lot and we jump on our bikes and we decide to bike up to the Regent Mall because Tim and I naturally love the, love the mall, right? <laughs> and we've got those bikes with the big dirt bike tires on it to go through the snow. So we go out here, we go down, we go down Fulton Avenue, we hit the trail, and it's Easy Street, right? We're waving to our friends, we're chatting, we have a wheelie competition, it's all nice, until when? Until we hit about Beaverbrook Street, right? And then we've got this in front of us, right? And what happens? What happens? There's no more wheelie competitions, right? Now... We're focused. We're standing up. We've got the little lean forward. Our legs are pumping. Our breathing has changed. We're not waving to people. Nothing else has happened. Everything else has fallen away. Any distractions have fallen away. Any meaningless things have fallen away. And we now have a focus. Get to the top of the hill. And so in the same way, that hardship of the hill brings focus to our life. It brings that steadfastness. We need to persevere. We need to keep going. We know, Tim and I know, that if we stop pedaling, we're coasting back down the hill. There's no time to do any foolishness. We are now focused on the task at hand. And the meaningless things become meaningless things, and we begin to focus on what's really important and that's what suffering that's what those hills of hardship do for us in our life and then paul says that focus that endurance that perseverance produces in us character suffering produces endurance endurance produces character in other words as we persevere through suffering we come out the other side looking more like jesus when we persevere through suffering we come out on the other side looking more like Jesus. So God is so concerned to make you like Jesus, He will even use suffering and hardship to see that happen. You see that? He is so concerned with building your character and conforming you into the image of Christ that He will use suffering and hardship to see that happen. In the same way that Tim and I are now stronger to go up the hill the next time, having, to go, having gone up it before. 
And then that character produces more hope in you because the suffering has worked in such a way to remove any confidence and hope that we had in other things. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. As we uh, endure through a trial, we're more confident in God on the other side. We say more confidently, He is able. He is enough. I leaned into Jesus when I lost this and I found that He satisfies. And so our hope is raised. So suffering doesn't beat up our hope. Suffering pumps up our hope. And now we face, when we face suffering as a Christian, we can still rejoice. Even while we grieve, we can rejoice. Even while we groan, we can rejoice. Even while we ache, we can rejoice. It's not that we're just turning a blind eye to our pain. Through the deepest possible pain, we can rejoice. Because our joy wasn't in the thing that the suffering took from us, but our ultimate joy was in the hope of the glory of God. We can rejoice. So the next question that we ask is, how do we know this? How do we know this is true in our lives? How can we know that we can rejoice in this hope? How can we have this assurance especially when things are rough and it looks like everything is just falling around you? How do we know that we aren't just wishing for the glory of God like we're wishing for pizza for supper? How do we know this hope won't disappoint us? And Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul points us to God's love. It's nice to know that when he justifies the ungodly, it's not just a cold transaction. That's probably the downfall of using the, the monetary examples of our debt and God crediting righteousness. It just feels so cold, right? There's nothing, nothing that has less feeling than just going to the bank and doing a bank transaction. But now we know that God's love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, is his demonstrating his love toward us, that he justifies you while you're ungodly because of his great love for you. So Paul points us to God's love. He demonstrated to us in two ways. The first is internal. It is subjective. It is the pouring of his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's an inner experience of the love of God. And it comes in varying degrees to different people. Some have a powerful experience of God's love. Others have a more gentle experience of God's love. But all Christians have some inner experience of God's love through the Holy Spirit. An old guy named Thomas Goodwin uses the illustration of a father and son walking hand in hand down the street. And suddenly the father picks up the son into his arms and he rubs his hair and he gives him a kiss and gives him a hug and he kind of dotes on him for a while and then he sets him back down and they continue walking hand in hand. And that was the illustration he used to say that we have an inner experience of the Holy Spirit pouring the love of the Father into our hearts. And 
And so the greater our inner experience of God's love in our hearts, the greater our assurance and certainty of the hope that we have. Just like the boy now has a little extra hop in his step, right? After his father scoops him up like that and gives him a kiss. Secondly, Paul tells us that we can be sure of this hope by seeing one big, objective, external, historical fact, a singular event that demonstrates God's love for us, and that's the death of his son on the cross. Verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul is saying that your feelings can go up and down. Everything around you can start to make you question. You can feel dry at times, but you can know that God loves you. You can know completely, objectively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, locked in, take it to the bank. God loves you by fixing your eyes on Jesus on the cross. How can I know that God loves me in the midst of this suffering? How can I know that my hope is secure. My whole world is crumbling down around me. How can I know that God loves me? And everything is unraveling, and you're in the midst of this real hardship, and the devil comes in, and he says, well, if God really loved you, and you can cut him off and say, he does love me, two words, the cross. You see that? The enemy will always come in in the midst of suffering and say, well, if God really loved you, would he, and you can just silence him with two words, the cross. I know he loves me because Christ died for me. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved me and he gave himself for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God shows his love for me, in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. So whatever suffering you're going through that is causing you to doubt the love of God in your life, it does not trump the display of God's love for you through the suffering of Jesus Christ. Whatever suffering you're going through that is causing you to doubt God's love in your life, it does not trump the display of his love through the suffering of Jesus Christ. So Paul's great argument so far is this. We've been justified. We now have peace with God. We now have access to grace. We now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That hope is bigger than any suffering we might go through, and we can be sure of it because of God's love demonstrated to us through his pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and through his death, through the death of his Son. And now look at how he closes this off. Paul is going to begin to climb a ladder here that will show us what the ultimate thing is that our justification produces in us. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he says, If you are justified today, then we will be saved at the end of time. It is for Paul an unbreakable chain that links your present status before God with your final status 
before God. And then in verse 10, he explains his reasoning. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he says it's really this simple. If Jesus didn't give up on you when you were his enemy, why in the world would he give up on you when you are his friend? If he didn't give up on you when you were his enemy, then why in the world would he give up on you when you're his friend? If he died for you when you were at war with him, would he now not save you when you have peace with him? So our justification produces this assurance in us. We've been reconciled, and now we have the assurance that we will be saved. And then he climbs again in verse 11. He says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you've been re reconciled to God. More than that, rest assured you will be saved. Still more than that, we rejoice in God. And so we come to the end of this section seeing that the ultimate end of our justification is rejoicing in God. I've been justified. I will be saved. I've been justified. I rejoice in God. Our justification produces joy in our life. It's a joy in God. It's joy in Him. So when we see the benefits that justification has brought us right now and in the future, we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in Him. The ultimate end of our justification is rejoicing in Him. Great things He hath taught us, great things He hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. We rejoice in Him. We rejoice in Him. Woo. You've been justified. You have peace with God. You have access to grace every day. You have a hope of the glory of God. Peace with God fuels your hope. Access to grace fuels your hope. When suffering comes on, no biggie, that fuels your hope as well. We see God's love for us poured into our hearts through the Spirit fuels our hope. We see Jesus on the cross fuels our hope and that hope then ignites in rejoicing God for who He is and what He's done. We rejoice in God. John, you can come up because we got to rejoice. <laughs> so this morning, you might be searching for peace. You might have lost sight of God's grace. You might feel hopeless. You might be suffering. You might be doubting God's love. You might not have any assurance. Wherever you might be with God, put your hope in Him. And let these words of Romans 5 sink in this morning. That you've been justified by faith. Receive reconciliation and rejoice. Justification equals joy. If we had to sum up those 11 verses in, in, or those 11 verses in three words, justification equals joy. You've been justified. See what that brings you and rejoice. Let's stand. Yeah. Father, we have very few words we can say in response to how great our salvation is. We have very few words that 
match uh, just what we've seen and all that justification has brought us and the fact that you brought, gave it to us while we were ungodly by putting our faith in you, not by our performance. We see its uh, steadfastness under suffering, that nothing that we experience in this life cancels it out. We see all of these things fueling our hope, and we just want to give you the honor and the praise that you deserve. So we just pray as we sing these songs. We don't have the words to say. We thank you for songs that help us have a train of thought that we can give you the praise that you deserve. So we just pray you continue to work in us. We pray if anyone here has not received that reconciliation that they'd receive it this morning. They'd be brought into all these benefits that we've just looked at. For those of us who have experienced that, maybe for a few weeks or a few years, we pray, Father, that you would just ignite our hearts in rejoicing to you and giving you the praise and the glory that you deserve. Great things you have done, and so we rejoice in you through Jesus, your Son. Amen.